Hello and welcome to the Interrobang Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Theodore. It's been a wild week for weather. From scorching high temperatures out west to wicked storms throughout southern Ontario and in the southern U.S. But these unprecedented changes in weather are not going to stop. In fact, according to our guest today, these types of heat waves and extreme weather conditions are only going to get worse and more frequent. That's why Professor Gordon McBain has dedicated years of research into developing strategies for climate resilient communities. Gordon has worked in government, traveled all over the world, and studied atmospheric science for decades. He, like many other scientists, have made it clear. The time for climate action is now. We are so happy to have him joining us today. Gordon McBain, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Hannah. Pleased to be here. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, now, I- I'm, I'm quite lucky. I feel like I've been able to grow up in a generation that was taught about and aware of climate change from an early age. I'm no expert by any means, but I, I've always felt that sort of sense of impending climate change. But more recently, I've started to feel what I've seen some folks refer to as climate anxiety. Is that warranted right now? I think it is because we are definitely increasing in the uh, the warming is is happening. And just so you know, that is the when we talk about the global warming, which is roughly 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade, in Canada, we're warming twice as fast as that. And the Canadian Arctic, about three times as fast. And we're seeing more climate warming kind of events with more intensities, like the heat dome that just happened in Western Canada and is now moving towards us here. But the increased numbers of uh, extreme events, like heavy precipitation events, uh, that kind of thing. So these things are happening and impacting people and ecosystems. Certainly. And you mentioned the heat dome, and I think that's important to contextualize this conversation right now, because uh, out west, we've effectively shattered the record for the hottest day in Canada, coming in at 46.6 degrees Celsius in Lytton, B.C. And your research suggests that we could start seeing heat waves like this far more frequently. Are we getting a glimpse of our future right now? Yes, we are. And, you know, the heat wave out in British Columbia was quite intense. And it, I think actually it went to 49.6 was the last number I heard in Britain. It, it just one day after another. And then the, the terrible wildfire that uh, just you know, wiped out the village of Lytton. Uh, and I think we're seeing these kind of events more often. You can't say that that event was entirely due to climate change, but you can say with com- confidence that the number of these kind of events is going up. And we've made projections from the science community uh, that if you think of, no, we used to have, say, in the Toronto, London area, about 10 days over 30 degrees Celsius back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. We're now well you know, beyond that, but we're beginning going up by you know, by the middle of the, the decade, 2050 or so, we'll be up to 40 such days per per year. And as we go further on, depending on the greenhouse gas emission situation, we'll have even more. And so you have to think about, you know, the, the these extreme events that happen so seldomly, once every 20 years, will start happening every three, four, five years now. And 
we're starting to see the evidence of that and also for precipitation events as well. Now, one of the ways that you're looking at adapting to these changes is by building climate resilient communities. Of course, folks are welcome to read the report that you've written, which is available on the Western website, yes? Yes. Uh, But for anyone who hasn't read it yet, what does a climate resilient community look like? Well, we were looking into uh, as part of this project, and we should stress that we had a team of 22 scientists including medical doctors writing a section on climate change and human health, including mental health and stress and trauma, Uh, uh, engineering people looking at physical infrastructure. How do we design our buildings so that they are first more robust in the sense that they can handle a heavy wind and rain events, the wind engineering program at Western working on that. Uh, We also, uh, and economists and people dealing with extreme, uh, as well as a whole section with the involvement of Indigenous people to write a section on how Indigenous communities are working together to adapt to the climate change and how that information can be good to other communities and vice versa, how there can be an exchange of information. But the Indigenous communities, there were three different groups in Canada had a contributed an author who helped write a section of that report. So what we're looking at is how do you make a city, a town, a community more resilient? So you need to look at how do you, uh, first of all, predict more accurately the extreme events that will happen, the heat, the floods, the storms. But given those hazardous events, it's exposure of the community and the vulnerability of those that are exposed that matter. So we want to, first of all, looking at, say, flooding, we want to make sure that you don't have people living in the floodplain along rivers, et cetera, where it's nice to look out over the water, but for which you might be at great risk when a flood happens. And so how do we adapt by either moving them or building infrastructure to prevent the floods from happening? But we also have to, in the case of heat, look at a variety of things, including what we call natural-based solutions, nature-based solutions, where you would, for example, put in more vegetation, particularly trees that are positioned and of the type that will give you appropriate shade, particularly in the summertime. And so you put the trees in your backyard on the south side of the house, not on the north side. So you want them to shade your property. Uh, We have the backyard of my house here, I won't show you now by moving the camera around, but there's lots of trees in it, so many that we can't see the house across this behind us uh, now because of all the trees that are up. But that's very good in terms of providing some moderating influence on the, uh, the heat effect, as well as to some extent, the wind effects as well are broken down by the, uh, the tree structure. So you can do a variety of those kind of things. You also have to, Uh, make sure that people, particularly poorer people, who don't have the resources to undertake these things, that these people are supported and informed and when appropriately warned about pending events. And that's what we need to do is ramp up the way in which we do that kind of information, your kind of podcasts, the kind of information systems we have that inform people. When I was watching some analysis of the 
lit in fire. They were talking to people in the wildfire. And, you know, some people said, well, we got three minutes warning. We didn't have time to do anything other than jump in the car and race like hell and leave all our good, you know, our family treasures behind. Couldn't we have known earlier? And then even when the warning went out, some people didn't hear it because they don't, they're not listening. They don't have their phone set up in the right way or they don't have this or that. And so we need to have a, a better observational surveillance warnings and warning communication system. Interestingly, uh, with the COVID situation, the Auditor General of Canada did a review of the response of Health Canada uh, to the COVID situation. This was a report written well, probably close to a year ago now. Uh, and one of the things they identified was that the lack of appropriate surveillance and warning systems and information systems to get the information out that they didn't weren't following these situations closely enough to realize this was happening uh, and we quote that in our report on building climate resilient communities because it really relates to building resilient communities in regard to a lot of factors including covid situations and that kind of thing because we need those surveillance information warning systems now would that kind of look like similar to with COVID 19 like like contact tracing and things like that to sort of like surveillance at the individual level or more to like track the weather be aware of it in order to like warn folks yes well in the case of the climate one you'd be tracking the weather more carefully but you also have to track in a sense the communities the infrastructure people who are more exposed and more vulnerable. So are they accumulating in certain areas or you know, are they gathering in certain places so that, uh, that you can recognize that this means that that coming heat wave or that big storm you're about to have is gonna have more impact because of the exposure and vulnerability of those people and hence, and also to get information warning systems to them and through the communities that are hopefully supporting them so that they're not as impacted as greatly. Now, uh, you mentioned the indigenous communities and their involvement as well in that report. Um, like you, and in, in the report as well, they're just sort of described as being at the forefront of, of building climate resilient communities. What can we learn from indigenous populations about building these types of communities? Well, I think we can learn from them as to how, where they have done things and how they've done it, how they brought information together based on traditional knowledge, but also factoring in the, the aspects of uh, climate science and that kind of thing. They, I mean, as you know, Indigenous people have been living in the natural environment for uh, centuries, uh, and uh, they have some nat you know, experience that is passed on through generations, and we need to benefit from that. And learn from them and also well work with them so it's not a case of just one doing one and something else doing something else we need to work together um, i uh, was part of a project a program called the arctic net it was a network to study climate change in coastal communities in the canadian arctic I think it's still going on but i was involved with setting it up around 2002 or three and was with it for 10 plus years and well, a great part of it was I got a chance to go up to the Arctic. I've been, been there once, but 
this time I got many times to go to Ikali Reads and Resolutes and other such things, but to meet with the community people and talk to them, the elders, the younger people, uh, on what they know and what they're doing. And uh, I think in that time I met the new, now new Governor General, Mary Simon. I think I was at some of the meetings that I understand she was at, but I can't find my notes on all of that. It's too far back, but I, as soon as the name was said, I said, I know that name. <laughs> Um, and Sheila Watluche was one I, who was leader of an indigenous northern community. Sheila was, uh, I worked with her very closely. I was her climate advisor on international kinds of things with the, the Inuit people. Uh, and we worked together on how we could bring that information better together and work on these kind of projects. So I think there's a thing where we need to involve the community uh, people to as we say, better uh, understand the science and its implications, but also the response strategies. And that's where we can really get into things. How do we, knowing that this kind of event will happen more often, what can we do so that they're not as impacting as they would otherwise be? And now it, it sounds as though this is less about preventing climate change and more about adapting to it. Is that the point that we're at now? Well, it's it's part of the point. I don't want to in any way uh, de-emphasize or not put importance on the in reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But I think it's the reality of it is that the climate system that if well when you put a carbon dioxide molecules up in the atmosphere when you're burning fossil fuels or whatever. Uh, those molecules are there for a hundred years. And the climate system, as with its oceans and other systems, responds relatively slowly. So we're still not adjusted to the amount of CO2, which is in the atmosphere is over 400 parts per million now. It used to be 280. So we've gone up by that difference. The amount of methane is more than doubled in the atmosphere. And these gases will stay there and the climate system is still warming. So the result is that when you look into the science is that even if we just stop our greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow to zero globally, is we would still, the climate would still warm for most of the rest of the century. And so we will have these extreme events, we'll have a warming climate. We'll continue at 0.2 degrees C globally per decade, at least until 2050, 2060, 2080. And so we have to adapt to that reality. And I don't want to then say we shouldn't worry about admissions. We should, because, well, uh, I don't have a picture of my grandkids behind me, but when I gave a talk some years ago to a Canadian cabinet briefing, one minister said to me, well, Gordon, you want us to do this, this, and this? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what, and what will happen between now and the next election? Not much. He said, well, why would we do it? And I said, do you have children or grandchildren? I do. And when I told that story some years later to a, a media writer, uh, she said, where are your grandchildren? I said, well, they're in Brantford. And uh, she said, if we get a camera crew out there tomorrow, can we get some pictures? And they did. I said, yes, I'll check with my daughter to make sure, but yes. And they appeared on the front page of the Globe and Mail newspaper with the story of 
why people should take action. It's for our children and grandchildren and all children and grandchildren around the world. And the medical report, that the report on resilient communities we wrote, uh, Dr. Anna Guntz, who was the lead author as a medical person, she's a medical doctor, a pediatric specialist. Uh, she said, you know, the biggest impact of climate change in the long term is actually on children, people who are children now, because they're growing up in it, but they'll have to live through it all their lives. Whereas we, as older people, have, let's say, not had to worry about it so much in the past, even though we have to now. So we, we need to do this for all kids. And when I give in talks, I always include my last slide, always shows little my kids, my grandkids, but also grandchildren from around the world, because that's who's going to be, is being, and will be even more impacted. I mean, that seems like it should be effective enough for me, but it, I mean, one thing that's sort of outlined in, in that report is that there has, there have maybe been long-term strategies that have been outlined, but immediate action continues to, to fall short. So what, in your opinion, do you think it's going to take for policymakers to start implementing and practicing climate resilience? Like, do we need a catalyst like we needed for COVID? <laughs> um, I think certainly we have evidence that catalysts happen. The happening does motivate action. Um, you know, there was the terrible Hurricane Hazel that hit Toronto back in the 50s. And the result was that they actually took action there, not because of climate change, but because of that kind of event. They didn't know about climate change much, but the person, one of my colleagues who worked on that later worked on climate change, but she said, so if you look at the city of Toronto uh, and you go up and down the Don Valley Parkway, it's mostly parkland around it. And then you've got up to the Northwest. Uh, I used to live in Kleinberg, as I said, Woodbridge was one of the communities really hit by the flooding associated with Hurricane Hazel. The result is there are conservation areas with parkland and reservoirs and dams and things that were put in then. Uh, in most towns, the equivalent of the Don Valley Parkway would be have uh, office buildings and, and expensive homes all the way along the river on both sides but there's not so much in Toronto. And that was a tragic event, which resulted in a, in a sense, a long-term positive thing. The, there was a hurricane that hit Nova Scotia back in I forget, roughly 15 years ago now. And so the government there has required that every municipality have a municipal climate change action plan. One of my graduate students did his PhD thesis on this. So I know a lot about it for that reason. Uh, and one of the motivating factors of the municipalities who acted and acted most effectively was the tragedy of going through that hurricane earlier. But I think we also just need to have scientific, well, listening to the science by uh, politicians and others and acting on it and recognizing that the immediate benefits are maybe not there in this kind of issue. But the economics, as we quoted in our report, uh, says that for every dollar you spend on building a climate resilient community will probably result in, according to best economic analysis, will result in five to six dollars saving 
when you actually have that tragic event, that impacting event, which is essentially inevitable. That's not, you can't say exactly when, but we need to have these kind of actions. And as we stressed in the report, we've been talking about a climate change adaptation strategy in Canada for decades. And only this spring did we, they finally convene a meeting to talk about a strategy. I was not invited to the meeting, so I don't know what happened there, but I've heard mixed stories. Uh, and what, when and what this will be, we'll, we don't know. And it's not a case of a strategy, a nice plan. It's action, as you said. We have to have people taking action. So on that note, can I, I just want to get, I want to get real for one second, because I mean, you've been working hard to conceive these, these action plans. And you mentioned as early as the, the late sixties, and you've heard conversations about climate change, greenhouse gases, as far back as 1824. Does it get frustrating to like work that long and not see any solid action come about? Yes, it does. And it, uh, you know, certain governments have been much more progressive. Uh, uh, you know, we had in federally a government from 2006 to 2015 that basically denied climate change. And although I was regularly meeting with ministers prior to that, in that whole period, I only once ever met with the Minister of Environment Canada. And that minister tried to, uh, to take action and then decided to leave politics. But, you know, so you have certain governments that don't take action for varieties of political motivations. And, and well, I was just reading a report today I get from the International Institute of Sustainable Development. I get their regular letters. And uh, they're just noting how many billions of dollars we have subsidized the oil companies with in over some recent period of time. And, you know, you want to think about, okay, well, why are we building more pipelines? And I object to those for two reasons. One is the environmental reason, but if you look at it, most of those pipeline purpose of them is to transfer unprocessed oil from a Canadian tar sand or some equivalent to some US or in China processing place where they'll have the jobs to actually process it into something useful. You think, well, if we're going to even spend money to get it out of the ground, why don't we at least hire the Canadians to process it? So to the extent that we need to have it, let's at least keep the jobs in Canada. That's, I mean, that's getting me off the climate issue, but, but I think, you know, we need to, yeah, and there's been increasing. I mean, we had uh, with in the U.S. with President Biden, uh, there's been lots of talk, and I think there's going to be action. My colleagues that I know of uh, seem to confident that things will actually happen, although it's becoming difficult with the way the U.S. Senate is functioning or not functioning. Uh, and the previous government, of course, denied it. They pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And if you read the report, I think we quoted in it, but you know, the Secretary General of the United Nations has been speaking out very forcefully on this as being the, the you know, these, the grand, the greatest challenge that society is facing is climate change. The World Economic Forum, which every year presidents and prime ministers from all around the world gather for their meetings, they put out a global risk report. And except this 2021 report, which made the pandemic COVID, 
as the most impacting event. They're looking at, at risk events that happen within the next 10 years, and they look at them by the impact of what they will have on societies and the, the likelihood of them happening. So they used to say some five, six years ago that the most impacting event was nuclear war. But since then, the most impacting event has been a failure of action on climate change, not adapting, not reducing emissions. And it the, and it's also one of the most likely. It's, and the other, the one that's been the most likely event for the next 10 years is extreme weather events. And the two are obviously linked together, as a scientist says. So, so what we're seeing in, and is that the World Economic Forum, which is a credible global organization with a policy and business-based background and connections, is saying that environmental issues, because they put about ecosystem loss and biodiversity loss as one of the other most impacting and likely events. So if you look at their list, the top four or five every year for the last few years have been what we would call environmentally related events. So we're well aware, basically. Well, we are well aware, we should be well aware, but unfortunately we need to have more of things like you're doing of people who will uh, you know, make out podcasts and give out media things and, and publish articles that are read and understood by uh, the general public so that if the politicians aren't acting, they'll hear it from their, their voters because that's the way they respond. Well, and, and certainly I know I, for one, appreciate all the work that you have done and um, in, in also trying to push that conversation forward. And um, I just thank you very much for being here, Gordon. It's been a great time chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Interbank Podcast. As always, you can catch up with all of our episodes on our website, Google Play, Apple Music, and Spotify. And for more information about Gordon's work, visit the Western website to find the full report on climate resilience. You can also check out a story on our website written by reporter Aisha Javed, who also spoke with Gordon about the risks associated with the high heat wave that recently hit the West Coast. For the Interabang, I'm Hannah Theodore.